Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally. Hello and welcome to episode 33 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name's Dan Hasler from Cut Through Coaching and joining me today is a very special guest. Anna Mears is regarded as the world's greatest ever female track cyclist. She is the only Australian to win individual medals at four consecutive Olympic Games. She's a new mum and her new book now has just been released and I thought I'd uh, get in touch after meeting Anna last year at an event that we were both speaking at and invite her onto the show. Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. So um, we met, I think, down in Adelaide and uh, we were talking at, both talking at a, a corporate do and um, I'm interested, I guess, in, you know, your story is, you know, a compelling one and people want to hear it. And I'm curious to hear what, what are the things that people really want to hear from you is it the is it the stories of the olympics is it the story of the dedication it takes what what is it that people really want to get when they come and, and and hear you speak i probably start with saying that most people are surprised when i when they do come and hear me speak because they feel they know me and they know my story mm. and they walk away realizing there is so much more to what they've either seen or been shown um over the years of Olympic coverage. Mm. And um, I think that has taken me by surprise in a lot of ways. And I think it's also possibly because I've taken the time to learn how to articulate not just the experiences that I went through, but um, the emotions, the thoughts, the feelings, mm. the, the frustrations, the adulation, the successes, all those sorts of things. So um, leadership is a big one. Yep. Facing adversity is the next biggest one, you know, tied in quite well with resilience and, mm. and dealing with change. Yep. Um, you know, teamwork is a really big one. There mm. seems to be a lot of people interested in understanding how a team performs at, uh, in a high performance environment. Yep. Um, and they think that I can't really contribute to that because I'm an individual <laughs> athlete, yeah. but they forget that there takes, there, there's a lot of people, yep. um, that makes one person successful in the sporting arena. So that, that let's that's a good one to to sort of kick off. You know, what does it take to be um, an Olympian? You know, what what is it that sets Olympians aside from? Uh, uh, I guess uh, apart from ability, should we say? Um, but what what is it that sets um, people aside? So yourself, you know, f uh, the only Australian to medal at four. Um, consecutive Olympic Games is that is that something that's innate? Is there something that you can kind of, you know, you, you, you've either got it or you haven't? Or are there things that you can learn? Are there things that you know, as you said there, the team around you can help? What, what, what does it take? There is always something to learn. Yep. <laughs> and uh, you know, I'm now looking at my 37th year, and there hasn't been a single year yet that I haven't learnt something. Mm. Um, so you're always able to upskill yourself, um, you know, acquire new skills, apply new skills, um, that coupled with talent, a bit of, um, kind of hard knuckled nature about you. You know, mm. my, my first coach kind of described it as having a bit of mongrel in you, yep. um, a bit of fight, a bit of passion and, and, and knowing what it is for you, why you're committing so hard to something. Mm. 
Um, you know, a lot of people go through their whole lives trying to find something that we identify a passion with and want to dedicate ourselves to. And many people don't find it. Yep. Um, and I found that young and early through sport and through a particular sport with, um, with track cycling. Mm. So, um, yeah, that's probably probably the gist of it. It's quite yeah. interesting, though, because in, in your book, though, you were saying, um, you know, you, you've never participated in sport just for fun. So, <laughs> no. <laughs> Like it's, and that that strike you know I, in a former life I was um, a PE teacher right and so uh, it was quite interesting to to read that people wouldn't engage in sport for fun because for me you know I'd, I'd sort of do any sport have a bit of a laugh but I guess that's why I might not be an Olympian I don't know but um, <laughs> but so but you you really what, so if you weren't participating in sport just for the fun of it, I say just for fun presumably there was an element of fun but it wasn't the sole yes. reason is that correct yeah you know, as a kid I remember I participated in all sorts of sports especially at school and growing up in the country but there was always a competitive element to it like I, I I wanted to achieve something I wanted to win a medal or do enough to win type thing and I remember this, there's a story my dad always tells of me in a swing race and um, he could tell I was doing just enough to win mm. and I was on the outside lane and he came over and he just kind of yelled you're coming third and I put the put the flippers down, so to speak, yep. and, and won by a, an even larger margin. Mm. And was quite, you know, taken aback by my dad's trickery. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he at least showed me that, you know, there was a lot more that I could do just to achieve for myself, not just mm. for, you know, um, the finish line, so to speak. Yeah, that, that's really interesting because it's a, a line I sort of throw around, and sometimes I get the roll of the eyes, and and you know, because it, it sounds kind of like an Instagram meme, you know. So what I try and say is, look, you know, don't worry about being the best, you know, worry about being your best, and and there's no. a, and there's a great example, I think. I mean, even in a in a swimming race, you know, you could have been the best just by cruising, which is you know, only be the best in the pool, but but you know. The, it, it, how does that play out as a as an athlete who clearly being the best, you know, being the world champion, being a world record holder, being an Olympic champion, it is about being the best. To what extent yes. can you reconcile those two? Like, would you roll your eyes at me if I said, <laughs> "Come, Anna, you know, it's not about being the best, Anna. It's about being." Is it? Is that too saccharine? Is it, or, or is there something to that? Uh, there is something to it, but it's in the way that it's delivered. Mm. Um, I, I remember my parents and even my siblings saying to me after a couple of losses and, and, and remembering that I've actually lost more than I've won mm. um, in my time, yep. um, that, that they're proud of me, that they're proud that that was the best that I could do at that time on that day. Mm. And, you know, when, when you're in a bit of um, sitting in loss or failure or defeat, that doesn't help. It doesn't <laughs> fix anything. Yeah. It doesn't um, land well. <laughs> no, it doesn't sit well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you kind of go, yeah, nice gesture. Yeah, yeah not quite. Yeah. Um, but uh, in hindsight, now that I'm out of sport, um, that was probably one of the best things that could have been said to me because it shifted the, the scale of pressure mm. to just my own self achievement and perception of achievement not opinion of achievement of what success was for me mm. um and i think that with time actually helped me 
be better over a longer period of time. It didn't help me initially, no. <laughs> but it helped me over a longer period of time. Yeah. But help me, I guess, help me understand then as an athlete who particularly around the Olympic cycle time, you know, the, the, the scrutiny, the expectations, the commentary, you know, the, the kind of feedback for want of a better word that you'd be getting through all different channels. How do you, um, I guess, sort of weigh all of that stuff up when a lot of the time, you know, it's coming from people who have no idea of the the challenges, sacrifices, what it takes to even, you know, get to the starting line, let alone finish the, you know, finish the finishing line in, in front. How do you, you know, you know, when there's all this talk about, you know, the funding that you that athletes get and the lifestyle that these athletes must have, and how how do you sort of balance all all that when, you know, yeah, it's it's hard and and maybe you know people might mean well or maybe they don't mean well but they at the bottom line is a lot of them fundamentally don't understand what it is they're commenting on yeah yeah you know opinions are hard in in comprehending because everyone has one and often we're more than eager to share it mm. whether it's beneficial or not to the party we're, we're sharing it with mm. um but and when you're kind of faced with opinion which brings pressure and expectation um often we can struggle to hear our own inner voice as to what our own opinion is mm. in listening to ourselves um, at that time. And so what, what I did to deal with those sorts of things was um, I really was select as to who I put in that circle as to their opinion mattered when I couldn't hear my own, right. um, especially when I was being drowned or in some ways suffocated um, by what was I was being confronted with mm. because um, nine times out of ten someone can tell you you look fabulous today and uh, one person will go mm, does that lipstick really match that outfit I get that all and the then time for the red do you like it just, <laughs> my lipstick I, just, I never match the oh. lipstick <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean I do know exactly what you mean yes yeah on that yeah. one comment yeah, and instead it, of the nine other good ones yeah um and so who you choose to be in your circle is really, really important. And I learned that um, through Gary West, my latest coach really yeah. was um, the importance of, you know, those people in your team yeah. and who you listen to and why mm. um, the trust element of that, mm. uh, the trust brings in your ability to communicate and be honest and open with your communications and to also bring uh, buy-in to not just the person, but their ability to fulfill their role that mm. will ultimately help. The, you and the team be successful at the end of the day yeah how, how do you go about deciding who gets in that circle and, and I'm also wondering I mean you mentioned it was your you know your, your, your most recent coach so uh, you know I work with um, a lot of young footballers you know and it seems like as soon as the game's finished bang they're onto social media to see how many mentions they've had and whether people rated <laughs> their games or not and I, I guess it's, it's really hard you know because when I rock up there and you know I'm 40 odd and they're sort of looking at me like I'm dad you know and i'm saying put yeah. your phones away what are you doing they don't they just don't i find it hard to sort of ex can communicate that you know you can choose and i love the fact you know you can choose who you bring in i'm wondering if it's not too impertinent to ask a lady you know their age but how old were you when you came to that realization um and how did you decide who got into that inner circle and yeah what was could you actually feel a tangible difference yeah yeah, I could. So I, was tw I know exactly when it happened. I was 24. Mm. Um, I'd just gotten home from America after I'd had a really severe fall and I, I broke my neck. Yep. 
And I found that being in a vulnerable state, I was easily swayed both emotionally and mentally Mm. by the people and their energy and their attitude that they brought to my company. Um, Negative people were met with negativity. Um, I adopted a victimized mentality. Um, It was all about the why me, poor me, it's Mm. not fair scenario. When I was around people who were positive, motivating, driven, happy, you know, using the art of distraction, I found that my focus wasn't on the situation I was in, but more around what tasks I could wanted, could and wanted to achieve each day in order to get out of the situation that I was in. Mm. Um, And so what I learned was negative people are people who find a problem and complain about a problem Mm. and positive people find a problem and want to solve the problem. And so I started to be able to recognize in people what those elements were and whether they were beneficial to my being around them. Mm. And it was a hard lesson to learn because I had to then subtly, you know, exclude or spend less time with those negative people Mm. because they just weren't um, helpful in in the larger sense of the the word. So Was that difficult because maybe there were people who were somewhat close to you? Was a, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It was friends. It yeah. was teammates. Yeah, right. It was people that I was actually, you know, had had to work with, mm. and um, it got to the point where, with those people, I was very direct in both what I wanted, how I wanted, um, and what time we spent together, mm. and that was it. There was no stepping over of those parameters that I'd put in. Yeah, well. Whereas other people, I would allow to step over those parameters, so to speak. Yeah. I mean that that takes a lot of discipline, and take I would imagine it take a lot of mental energy um, to to try and keep those you know boundaries there, and and that idea of the the mental side of you know performance is something that really you know it it, it was pr- that and the what we might talk about shortly about the the rivalry with Victoria Pendleton, but the, particularly the mind games and the um, you know the psychological side of performance that I just I, I, I reread. A few of those those chapters a couple of times because it was just for me it was fascinating to um you know the story of um being the world champion and then going for olympic gold and in the months leading up to essentially rehearsing for that moment over and over again and i just mm. wondered um you know it, this idea of being told every time you set, step, uh, sat on the bike you know your coach would be in your ear with the time to beat I'd, I'd love it if you could just tell that story in, in, in your own words, you know, the um, 34.1 seconds, the time to beat. And just, I guess, the value in mentally preparing for a physical performance and, and the extent to which you feel that can be the difference between being your best and perhaps not. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so that that lesson and that experience came, um, I was 20 years of age. I had just won my first senior world title in Melbourne in May of 2004, um, which resulted in me being selected for my first Olympic Games, which was Athens later that year. Um, my coach at the time, Martin Barras, knew that we were going to have to do quite a bit of work psychologically, not just physically, because physically I had already presented a, you know, very good work, very good um, ethics and a very good um, result. Mm. But he knew that I'd not been to the Olympics before. He knew that I didn't know what to expect. 
Um, and he knew that I was going to have to do quite a bit of legwork before I got there to be able to um, survive in the environment, so to speak. And so he went to the Adelaide Superdrome with me and my then sports psychologist, um, Georgia Riddler, and sat me down in the empty Adelaide Superdrome. And it was cold. Um, it was, you know, this, this sort of velodrome where you speak and it echoes type thing. Mm. And I sat in a chair with my bike in front of me. I was holding the seat. And he said to me, just close your eyes. I want you just to listen to what George is going to talk you through. She's going to talk you through um, visualizing what it's going to be like inside the Olympic velodrome. And, uh, and I said, okay. So I closed my eyes and I started to listen. And, and Georgia just started to talk me through, you know, you've gotten off the bus, you're in the Australian uniform in the colours, green and gold, you know, you're feeling a bit nervous, your hands are a bit clammy, you're not really sure what to expect. You walk down the tunnel and you come up the tunnel and, and you can hear the noise but you can't see anything yet. Mm. But the, the response of your body is starting to pump some more adrenaline and more nerves. And by the time I get into the track, she says, now you can see everything. Now you can see the flags of all the countries. Now you can see what's making the noise. It's all the people in the stands. You can see them in and out of their seats yelling at people on the track. You can see the riders on the infield warming up. You can hear the pedals clicking in and out of the, of the cleats. And you can hear the rollers and the ergos and the coaches and the clocks. And you can see the cameras and the flashes and the, the journalists and and now you've got to walk to your seat and now you've got to get yourself ready for competition. And, and the story continued and mm. the story continued. And um, at the time when I got into that story and it was my turn to get on the track and perform my race, she just said to me, okay, now open your eyes. And I looked up completely overwhelmed mm. <laughs> by what I had created in my mind. And my coach just said to me, last ride at the Olympics, I think it's going to take an Olympic record to win, which is 34.1. So he said, your time to beat, being the last rider to start being world champion, yeah. is 34-1. Yeah. And he put me on the bike and he made me doing, do a standing quarter, which is 65 metres. Now, the race at the Olympics will be 500 metres from the standing start. Over 65 metres, I performed a second slower than I had done any other day in training because I was so thrown off mm. by what I thought the Olympic environment was going to be like. I wasn't not there yet, Mm, (laughs) but that's just what I thought. And so every day when I did my standing start training for the 500 time trial, my coach Marv and my sports psychologist would run me through that drill. Mm. That very, it would be so repetitive that I knew it off by heart by the time I got there. And by the time I got there, I was so calm with what I was expecting the Olympic environment to be that I felt okay until I stepped in it. And then I started to feel the response. I started to feel like my legs weighed like, you know, two tons of concrete. I literally wanted to pick them up with both of my hands, one leg at a time to move them. And I got to the um, apron of the track when it was my turn. And the last words I remember my coach said to me was 34-1 to beat. Mm. Literally that was the time written by my Chinese opponent, an Olympic record Mm. and um, from that very moment I instantly went calm my legs felt light and I was I was ready to roll but um, the thing that I learned about that was I could do so much preparation in my head that wouldn't actually fatigue me physically Mm. to get me ready for a big moment like training is just one element 
and using visualization is a great way to continue, um, I guess, in some ways, syncing the system for, for what you need to be ready for mm. in order to be at your very best in that one moment of time. Absolutely. And in a 500 meter time trial, you're talking about one moment for a race that lasts 33 seconds mm. to get right once every four years. And you, you understated that little bit there, um, I was ready to roll. How fast did oh, you yeah. roll? <laughs> <laughs> How fast did you roll? I, uh, I broke the world Olympic record. I yeah. rode 33.952. So I was the first woman in the world to ride a sub 34 second for a standing 500 meters time trial. Yeah. yeah so that was, um, it was a Olympic record by two tenths and it was a personal best by almost half a second. Yeah, which is incredible, right? I mean, that, as you, as we said, just, a bit before you know like, like you're dealing in milliseconds so that's ma massive yeah 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 we're talking in thousands of a second mm, yeah um from, from winning and losing mm. um so the timing of everything needs to be perfect yeah so i wonder then you know the idea of visualization i mean being able to think about that elsewhere in in life as well you know people listening to this podcast aren't just in sport they're all you know leaders they're in education i wonder you know the idea of visualization if that's a little foreign uh, perhaps to people outside of the sports psychology world but i'm wondering if in in your experience or you know could you see a value in in that in in other other arenas absolutely mm. um one of the one of the things that i i like to talk to a lot of people about is this in particular um, a lot of us are fear-driven when we do visualizations in context of, um, I'll give you an example yep. for a young kid in, in a sporting team. Um, what if the coach puts me in front of the soccer goals and I miss the goal for the team? Mm. Um, if you're going um, from for your year 12 exams, what if I fail my exam and I don't get the score I require for university? Mm. Um, if you're going for a job, what mm. if I go and stuff up my job interview and I don't get the job? Public all speaking, presentations, <laughs> you name it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The list is extensive. Yeah. All those things haven't happened yet. Mm. But if you start telling yourself, I'm going to miss the goal before mm. I even give myself a chance to get the goal, mm. often you're going to follow the the thought process you're putting out there. So mm. <laughs> what what I try to tell people is focus on the little things like, you, like we spoke about mm. before we actually started this um, recording. Yep. The, the process steps that make a goal happen, um, you know, that to set up in front of a goal, you need to keep your breathing calm. Mm. You want to hit the ball, the right part of your foot. You want to be able to target the area of the goal that you want to. Um, if, if I say, don't think of pink elephants, mm. you think of pink elephants. Mm. If I say, think of blue sky, you think of blue sky. It's, it doesn't matter what you do or don't tell yourself to do. It's the action that follows it mm. that you'll often follow. Yeah. I wanted to extend the idea of the, the mind games thinking to um, London 2012. And I've almost forgiven you for beating Victoria Pendleton <laughs> at a home Olympics in London. I've almost forgiven you. I mean, the fact you've come on here, you know, that's, that's, that's gone some way. It's gone some way to helping. Um, we, but, both, we both got a gold at those games. Ex exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you did, I mean, I was fascinated reading. So it, it, I, I, I went to the back of the book, right, and looked in the index and looked how many times the the name Victoria Pendleton is mentioned throughout the book, right? And it's you you know this because it's your book. It's it's littered throughout the book, you know. And 
I, it really got me thinking on the importance of having, you know, what you might call a worthy rival, someone who obviously you want to beat, but also someone who continually, without perhaps even them knowing it, you, they're pushing you to, again, be your best. Um, and I'm curious to hear, you, you had a, a really deliberate strategy about how you were going to take on Victoria in, in at the London Games. And I'm just wondering if you could just share a little bit about the uh, the Know Thy Enemy project. Yeah, yeah, I'll try and um, give it to you as briefly as mm. possible. Yeah, because it was a long um, process, right? It was a massive project. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Very, very. It was a project that lasted about three and a half, four years. Wow. And, and a lot of people think that Know Thy Enemy was about me getting to know Victoria Pendleton. Mm. Um, but it was actually me getting to know me through mm. understanding my opponent. And it, it stemmed yeah. from the art of the samurai. Mm. And um, basically we took 300 hours of race footage of Vicky Pendleton. We broke her down to statistical data mm. because that data did a couple of things. Firstly, it removed the emotion of the rivalry. Mm. Um, it allowed me to see the information to create the strategy that would ultimately allow me to be successful in London against the best woman in the world. Yep. Um, in understanding what Victoria's strengths and weaknesses were or preferences in sprinting were, mm. allowed me to upskill myself to counteract them. Mm. And it took a lot of people to do the analysis. It took a lot of people to give me the information in a manner that I could understand it, to essentially break down old habits and learn new skills mm. in order to be able to implement them under pressure um, on competition day. So, yeah, it was quite an extensive project. Yep. Um, but the, the gist of it came about was because she was the best in the world. Mm. Victoria Pendleton was not going to get worse. Right. I had to get better. Yep. And if it wasn't for her, I probably would not, have one had the team to help me get better, but two had the desire to push so hard to to find it in myself yeah. to be better. I I, I just loved that what you said there about you know it what no, it, it's, so the project was called Know Thy Enemy as you say from the art of the samurai, but it wasn't l learning about them in order to learn more about yourself. I just I, for me like it, that's something I'm really going to be taking um, to the people I work with, not just in sports, but across the, you know, across all the domains, because a lot of the time people, you know, they, they feel threatened by mm. other people's successes. They're anxious about that. You know, they start almost, um, you know, they, they start begrudging other, you know, I'm thinking in a team setting, for example, if somebody is selected in my position at the start of the season, for example, you know, I, I wonder by shifting the mindset to be deliberate, okay, well, what can I learn about them so I can learn about myself rather than, yeah. rather than, gee, I hope they get injured next week so I can <laughs> get a game, <laughs> you know, but, 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 yeah. you know, that's a very superficial way of thinking about it. But there's lots of people who, who absolutely, I think would really benefit from looking at in that way. And uh, for yeah, me, yeah, that yeah. was really powerful. Oh, that's, that's really good to know yeah. because yeah, for me, it was all about how I could be my best, not just to ensure that I got selected, but ensure that I gave myself the best chance to be competitive. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, because you can't guarantee you're going to win. You can't guarantee no. you're going to get the position. You're not going to, you just can't have those guarantees. There's too much that's out of your control. Mm. And what you can do is bring that focus back to you using the other person as leverage. Yeah. And what you can do also 
is speak to John Eels about controlling <laughs> the last. This for me was fun. This for me is awesome. This idea of controlling those last few seconds before the performance. Um, that again, this book. I, I mean, I said to you before we kicked off the recording. You know, I, did, I, I smashed the book in two days, and there's so many things that I'll be sharing with people I work with. But you spoke to John Eels for those who maybe don't know. John Eels, um, captain of the Wallabies uh, rugby union team. His nickname allegedly is nobody because <laughs> nobody's perfect. But he had a, 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 a relative, well, a really good, in comparison, uh, winning percentage as captain against um, the All Blacks. And could you just share with him that, that, that little, share with us rather, the, the little nugget that he gave you around controlling those last few moments? Yeah. So it was my sports scientist, um, Nick Flager, who actually suggested that. I talked to John Eels, who was our mentor for the London Olympic Games as a cycling team. And he said, you know, tap into him because he's got experience in being able to perform in front of a volatile crowd mm. or, or a one-sided crowd. And he, and he said, this is a guy who's played against the Kiwis who, um, and won. Mm. And, um, and so I did. I said, and I asked him, I said, well, how did you remain composed after you faced the Kiwi Haka in order to lead the team and perform and be successful on the, on the footy field? And, um, and he shared with me that initially when he took over captaincy, they were just overrun by the Kiwis after mm. the Haka because they were just so amped. You know, yeah. they do the Haka, the ref would blow the whistle and, and they were, you know, it would take them till halftime for the yeah. coach to give them a kick up the backside. Um, to be able to get their yeah, gear into their, themselves into gear. Mm. And so what he decided as, as captain was that the Australian team would start to go out in their track suits to face the Haka in, in arm in arm mm. in order to take back control of the moments before the game. Yep. And by wearing the track suit, it meant not only did the Kiwis have to perform the Haka and then wait for kickoff, mm. but they had to wait for the Aussies to get off the field, take the track suit off, have their last little word and then come back into the game when they were ready. Yep. And so we took that um, lesson or, or shared story from John and applied it to Victoria in London in that mm. we were in front of her home crowd and we decided that we would be getting put on the bikes at the same time, but that didn't mean I had to go on the track mm. at the same time. And so we allowed Victoria to go onto the track first. Whose nickname, just to give people, if they don't remember, they, her nickname was Queen Victoria. It was proper British, you know, patriotism, <laughs> wasn't it? I mean, it was full on, right? It was super full on. <laughs> I mean, at, this, at this point, so Paul McCartney's in the stands, <laughs> Harry's in the stands, Princess Anne was in the stands. Like, it's just, it was ridiculous yeah. to me. All these people that should just be in magazines are now, like, literally... Yeah. Watching you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hoping you um, fall off. <laughs> yeah, exactly, I know. Uh, sorry, but not sorry. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we, we allowed her to go on the track first to mm. take the adulation and edge off the crowd. Mm. And we knew that she would draw noise. Um, so we allowed her to be announced first. And then we made her sit on the start line mm. waiting for me, but um, my coach and I were just sitting there talking about our strategy and we were waiting for the pitch of the crowd to drop yep. because once the, the noise level lowered, then the crowd was no longer focused on their home girl. They were mm. now focused on me and that gave me the window to walk onto the track without being overwhelmed in an environment, which really I had no control over. That uh -huh. was the one element that I probably could control. Mm. 
And again, you know, I'm thinking of all the lessons, the method, you know, the the analogies that people can use here about before a big performance, whatever that is, you know, what routine or deliberate action can they take in order to be operating on their timeline? On the, you know, the, can, how do they control those last few moments before they, for example, walk onto stage or give a presentation or, as you say, sit an exam or kick a penalty goal, whatever it might be. I wanted to round this out and talk a little bit about how you've gone post cycling. Um, mm-hmm. One of the stories which um, you know jumped out at me, and it's probably why it's, it's in the book because it, it does so, is the, the your art class that you went to, you know, and um, you found it difficult to you know, start painting. Um, yeah. I, what, what's it like for? an elite athlete who is the best in the world unequivocally you know you've got the <laughs> all the all the stats say say so to then not be that person anymore almost almost in the blink of an eye and and as you said cycling seemed to go on without you um yep. and and you're off to art class can you just give me <laughs> and i don't mean to i don't mean that to sound flippant in any way but no, i'm just trying it's to it's a perfect way to put it because mm. that's how um how it's a great way to put it because that is why I think I struggled so much with it. Mm. Um, I've come from an environment where we're measuring down to the thousandth of a second. Like this is, if you don't know the distance of that time measurement, it is the width of a lead pencil line drawn on a piece of paper. Mm. This is the environment I'm coming from. Mm. You take this a step back into the process of what it takes to be able to win by those sorts of margins. Mm. It's, you know, you are very particular, you are very deliberate, you are very measured, you are very well structured, your routine that you follow is per- almost perfect. The team that you have around you, um, that, you know, they're, they're right across that plan. Mm. And when I retired and let go of sport and sport carried on without me, and I started to venture out and find new interests and new passions, all of a sudden, I wasn't just applying to myself going from the top of my game to the very beginner of a new um, skill I was trying to acquire. Um, But all that judgment, all that critique, all those opinions that I had almost uh, been able to cope with my whole career, all of a sudden came heavily crashing down on me Mm. when I tried to pick up a completely new skill. (laughs) And um, I couldn't even make the first mark on the canvas. I was literally, I felt paralyzed by the judgment I was taking on of myself um, because I, I wanted to do it perfectly. I wanted to be the best, even though I knew in my head that rationally that was not, um, you know, it just wasn't uh, acceptable because Mm. you had to start somewhere to pick up new skills in order to be better at something. I knew that. Mm. Um, But how I physically responded was just to freeze in that environment. You know, you put me in a a velodrome with a few thousand people I, I could do it, but put me in a classroom with eight people. I couldn't even put a paintbrush to canvas. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so what have you had to learn about yourself then in the same way you learned about yourself through, you know, studying a rival? What have you had to learn? What, what have you learned about yourself post cycling? Um, I've had to learn, you know, even though I understood and knew my personality um, and, and how I applied my personality to be successful in the environment that I was, that's not always required to those 
nth degrees in those levels mm. um, in everyday life. Yep. And it's, it's not just in that capacity, but um, also, you know, learning to be kinder to myself mm. um, and understanding that life doesn't always get run to that nth degree. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. The, and the, you know, you, you and your partner, you, you're new parents. So I'm assuming there's a fair bit of learning going on uh, right now. Yeah, I'll say my, my partner, Nick, he's just walked into my daughter's nursery to change her. So we've just swapped yeah. rooms. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's, um, you know, I think what she, my daughter, Evelyn, has been able to teach me is just to slow down a bit. Mm. Um, I've always been present, but present under pressure. Mm. And I think now what she does is allow me to be present in in a very calm sort of way. Mm um fatigue is a different level obviously sleep deprivation deprivation yeah, how old is she is just a whole other game uh, she's just turned four months four old. months so you're oh <laughs> you're right in the mix <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah. If, if evelyn turns around one day and says hey mom i want to get on a bike you know what is, is is this is is that something that you would absolutely um you know push her in the direction or support her in the direction of absolutely yeah um, I'd make sure she was doing it for her, mm. not, not for any other reason, not mm. for me, because um, unfortunately that environment will bring um, a straight-up expectation yeah. being my daughter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I just want to be able to give her experiences in every capacity to find her own passion. Mm. It doesn't have to be in the same environment that mine was. Mm. Well, yeah. Thank you so much um, for your time, Anna. I appreciate, as you just mentioned, the level in there needs needs some attention. So let me uh, <laughs> let me let you go. And I'm so very grateful for you um, giving your time. I'm sure everyone listening would have got um, a lot out of it. If people are interested in um, you know finding out even more about you in terms of the, your book or um, social media where, or whatever, where, where would be the best place to find you online? Yeah, so I'm, I'm just at Anna Mears on all the uh, social media platforms. Yep. And uh, my book is available both in Australia and internationally through stokehillpress.com, which is the publisher of yep. the book. So Fantastic. I'll put a li- to go. Yeah, I'll make sure those links are in the uh, the show notes, as they say. Um, but yeah, once again, thanks so much. And uh, hopefully I'll pass across again soon. Pleasure. Thanks, Dan. So as I mentioned there, there is a, a link to get hold of Anna's book in the show notes, as well as uh, all the ways you can connect with her on social media. If you like the podcast, don't forget, please, to share it as far and as wide as you can within your networks. And also don't forget to uh, rate the podcast, comment on the podcast, and of course, subscribe to the podcast. Doing those three things just makes it a little bit easier for other people to find our work. If you would like to get in touch with us, if you'd like to suggest guests for the show, or if you've got a question for an upcoming episode, then please head over to habitsofleadership.com where you can uh, drop us a line and also uh, listen to all our past episodes as well but until our next episode thank you so much for tuning in we really do appreciate it take care take it easy